I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending May 7th. In 1950, only about a third of the world's population lived in urban areas. By 2020, the percentage just about doubled. Now, roughly two-thirds of the world's population lives in cities. There were just two megacities in 1950, cities with more than 10 million people. They were New York and Tokyo. There are now 22 by one count. Big cities are made possible in no small measure by technology. That includes everything from plumbing to steel frame architecture to elevators to mass transit systems. Historically, cities have been enthusiastic adopters of technology. Which brings us to the subject of the latest technological advances and smart cities. This week, we examine what's happening with smart cities and why smart city technology might be on the verge of significantly wider adoption. We'll get to our conversation about smart cities in a moment. First, here's a quick rundown of some of the most interesting articles we have in EE Times this week. The processor market is certainly more glamorous, but memory devices are critical, and there is plenty of innovation in memory technology. One of the latest trends is to stack memory devices for any number of reasons, but prominently to support artificial intelligence applications. The latest on stacking memories from Gary Hilson, EE Times, Man on the Memory Beat. Self-driving vehicles will be autonomous except when they're not autonomous which is as problematic as it sounds. Self-driving vehicles are always going to get themselves into situations in which they just can't figure out what to do, and in those circumstances, it's going to be necessary to have humans take control. That's why the option for teleoperation was going to have to be built into every autonomous vehicle. We've got an article by automotive analyst Egil Juliusson, who enumerates the unanswered questions about teleoperation. The Embedded Vision Summit will be held later this month. In the run-up to this year's virtual event, we've got several articles looking at the state of the art in embedded vision. Spoiler alert, embedded vision has been cheap enough for a growing number of applications, but now it's getting pretty easy to actually develop those applications. We've also got articles on Google's Nest Hub the economic justification for silicon carbide devices and electric vehicles, the transition from ARM's current architecture to its next, the transition from ARM V8 to ARM V9, and more. Visit our website at eetimes.com for the latest in industry news and analysis. If you reached this episode through our podcast webpage, there are links to all of these stories on your left. We all knew the signposts to look for that would tell us when the future finally arrived. It would be the future when we were all making video phone calls, had robots that would sweep our kitchens, and when our cars would drive themselves. Seems like the future is nigh, but, as has been noted before, they promised us jetpacks. And another thing we were supposed to have by now was smart cities. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of smart city technology implementations. But on the other hand, many instances of smart city technology are focused on accomplishing just one discrete thing 
or on a very small number of related things. Smart city technology is being implemented around the globe, but there are markets that have declared they want to lead in deploying smart city technology. India is one, Singapore is another. Of course, Singapore might have an unfair advantage in that it's essentially a city-state. Anyway, it all begs the question, what's the status of the trend towards smart cities? To answer that question, I decided to give the folks at US Ignite a call. US Ignite is a nonprofit founded in 2012 that describes itself as a catalyst for the smart community movement. It's run by a group of executives who, among them, have a lot of experience with information technology, broadband technology, and with networking and communications equipment, which all seems appropriate given that connectivity is a mandatory predicate for smart cities. Mari Silby, the Senior Director of Partnerships and Outreach at US Ignite, happens to be an old friend. Among her responsibilities is public outreach for US Ignite, helping to communicate about best practices and technology innovation emerging from communities, universities, and the private sector. Tell me about uh, what smart cities actually is technologically is it is it one thing is it something is it is it a category all by itself or is it a combination of uh connectivity low power wide area networking and and iot and whatever else yeah no so we at us ignite i i think about it this way we we run a number of programs that are designed to expand broadband and wireless connectivity but also to help smart communities use those networks to solve local problems and grow. So it's really about that that underlying connectivity infrastructure, again, whether it's wired or wireless or low power or not low power or IoT or connections via broadband. It's all of that connectivity infrastructure, but then connected with the applications and services that actually have an impact on the people within the community. Do communities, so I imagine that that's a, that's kind of a community uh, point of view. Here are our resources. What can we do with the resources we have? Um, the flip side would be if we had 5G, we could do such and so. Um, is this a justification for us encouraging more 5G? I mean, what I, I imagine you, you see, you know, the people who actually help implement smart city solutions see both, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, I would say there's, yeah, there, there's kind of two sides to that. There is every community has now heard all of the marketing around 5G and thinks, oh, I, you know, I must have that. I should have the 5G. Um, but, uh, but, you know, where we could, kind of try to focus the conversations are on really what is it that you want to use it for? What is it you are trying to solve? And maybe that works with 5G and maybe that's something else. Our One of our programs is called Smart Gigabit Communities. And the reason it was, you know, it was originally called that is because the focus was on, you know, super high throughput broadband. And of course, that's only a piece of what network connectivity offers. So we've kind of expanded that that thought process to 
advanced networks in general, because it might be high throughput, it might be the speeds of 5G or the latency of of 5G, or it might be, you know, things that don't need all of that horsepower because you are talking about IoT or devices that only need to connect here and there, but need to be extremely reliable. So, yeah, you can certainly, you know, there's certainly the discussions around 5G and the need to push forward the state of the art both from a marketing perspective and also from a technology perspective. Um, but we, we try to definitely balance that out with, with discussions about what is it we're using it for and what problems can we solve. One of the things about, uh, uh, about some of the smart city programs, some of them seem relatively simple. Maybe it's uh, 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 just, is there somebody in that parking spot, that parking meter is open Yes, you can, you know, if you're driving downtown and you want to find someplace to park, go to the corner of First and Main. Uh, that seems like a relatively simple. Others seem like they might, if you're looking at uh, perhaps traffic management, that's a, just a, a, an incredible avalanche of information. Um, I've got to imagine that artificial intelligence, the ability to, to consume analyze and get some actionable data out of um, out of the information you're collecting is you know you've got separate categories of of what you want to do and how you want to accomplish it and that maps to probably a lot of different new technologies that you can bring to bear to solve that specific problem um, how do cities think about that when when uh, an organization like Ignite comes in? Uh, what kind of guidance do you try to p- provide cities as they try to figure out what they want to do? Yeah, so that's a good question, um, and it's it's a big messy hairball. Is what I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we when we talk to communities again, US Ignite, we try to try to figure out what it is they're trying to solve or what what is their actual objective, and it could be something as simple, quote unquote, and non-sexy as trying to get more, you know, constituents and and residents and such connected to internet, right? That's still a big deal. And we still certainly have seen a lot of that, particularly coming out of this pandemic, the importance of the connectivity. But for some, it really is about how do we look at the state of the art or how do we, how do we use that, uh, those more complex technologies to, to try to solve some problems. So, you know, one example, through our, our network of smart communities, we have a number of partners who run competitions to develop applications or services using some of these advanced technologies. And one of our, one of our partners, for example, brought in a startup organization called Augmented Training Systems. This was down in the, the city of Austin, Texas. And they the Augmented Training Systems folks created a mass casualty incident training system for first responders to be able to practice what it would be like to be in that situation, but in a virtual environment. So the idea being not that this replaces even, you know, in-person training scenarios that might happen, um, but the idea that that you can use virtual reality for some of the training systems, particularly during a pandemic. And, you know, this was tested, this was tried out in Austin. And then actually the, the I believe it was the public safety department actually is now 
uh, formed a deal with the startup to be able to deploy this for first responders to run some training scenarios because they, you know, it's a it's a valuable use of the technology and it it solves a problem for them, which is that people need practice and they can't always, you know, schedule these in-person, very expensive, very time-consuming training sessions. So that's that's one example, but they really kind of run the gamut too. I, you know, one of our favorite ones is from down in Chattanooga. And this is not new, but it is, it is expanding. Um, down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, there's uh, the a team down there set up a microscope. Actually, initially when it was done, there was a, a 4K microscope that was set up at uh, one of the University of California schools. And students in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in the high one of the high schools there, were able to connect with a professor out uh, in California, but also actually control the microscope that was in the lab in California and be able to see the 4K resolution images of, I think it was pond water <laughs> under the <laughs> under the microscope. So and and now what's happening that, you know, that was a few, that was several years back. Now that's shifted. There's actually a microscope in one of the schools in Chattanooga where the students are kind of the 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 leaders of that training program and they are now connecting out to other more rural schools in the area so that they can be the sort of the training and the teachers and the these additional schools can have access to that resource even though um, they may not have that microscope in their own classrooms so there's again there's a, a ton of different um, a ton of different ways to think about using the more advanced technologies and we really do see the we really do see the the gamut from you know just let's get the connectivity out there to you know what are those sexy Jetsons jetpack use cases? <laughs> so, <laughs> no jetpacks yet, unfortunately. Right. So a that's pretty cool, and b it's really nice to be able to look at your own pond scum. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, whatever floats your boat, really. But uh, 4K pond scum is pretty cool. Um. Uh, that's that kind. That's uh, so. One of the things you were you were talking about. One of the aspects of of that last answer you're talking about was um, with the with the training exercise and being able to replicate it elsewhere. Um, a lot to when I've been reading about smart cities, it's often. Uh, somebody comes in, says, "What do you need? What's your what's your top priority?" And they try to figure out uh, how to create a, a like a, a bespoke a solution uh, for a specific local problem. You know, obviously using maybe standard standard technologies, but still the combination, the integration, the the system integration might end up uh, the result might be something relatively unique. Um, I mean, technology companies have always had reference designs. Here's how you do this if you want to, if you would like to do something like that. Here's here's a basic pattern. Is the smart cities trend at a point where there are more reference designs, blueprints, guidelines, whatever you want to call them, so that a locale that would like to be able to do something can adopt something that already exists or or with minimal modification so it can do less research and planning. I am so glad you asked that question because I think when US Ignite started, the the team here 
really thought that we would be at that place earlier in the game. So USA Ignite's been around for about 10 years now, maybe not quite. And it was a real struggle early on to make things at all uh, replicable from one community to another. So it's it's taken a long time to get that, to that point. And I think we are still at the early stages of, of, of that happening. But but I, I can give a couple examples of where we are starting to see some replication. And then I can also say that one of the things that we try to really do in our, our network of communities is to do a lot of peer learning. So whether it's uh, a specific application or whether it's a specific issue like data privacy or... Um, gosh, uh, working with particular, um, you know, working with service providers, for example, network service providers, we try to do a lot of peer learning uh, across the this network of communities so that the things that, you know, some communities learn can be replicated in other places in addition to just the technologies uh, and the, um, the specific applications. Um, but to go to those specific applications, for example, I did, you know, I, I mentioned um, the the telescope or the microscope, rather, sorry, uh, and the replication, some of the replication that's happening there. There's another project. This one's out of Salt Lake City. Some, some faculty and students from the University of Utah, uh, through one of our programs, um, we supported as they developed and deployed a real-time air pollution monitoring network. And this the technology that came out of that is now being commercialized by a, a local company, startup company. And one of the things that we did, seeing the success of this, uh, we used funding from the National Science Foundation to say, okay, we want you to help share this technology and share what you've learned in the deployment with additional communities around the country. So that is now happening um, they are working with communities, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas, and also Cleveland, Ohio. And the funding is paying for them to ship uh, systems with air quality sensors to each of these new communities, uh, and also for the, the team in Utah to provide some data analysis support, but really to sort of kickstart this replication in other pockets around the country, because if it works, something like that works in one place, um, there's the certainly the potential for it to work uh, elsewhere. But everybody, you know, trying to find the resources for somebody to think about how to integrate it into their own systems or how to use the technology or learn it, you know, people have have day jobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think this is a great example of using, for example, government money to to really seed something that can then be uh, you know then has the potential to take off from there and be more self sustaining. So I, I I just I love that example. It's again still early as many of them are. Um, I think another another example of where we're starting to see some some replicated learnings is around smart streetlights, and that I think has been a I won't say an easy one, but the the business model use case for upgrading to LEDs made it possible to for a lot of communities to fund upgrades to smarter streetlights because they are saving money on the energy side. Um, and 
even that there are still differences in, in different communities as to how those get deployed, but there is starting to be more of a critical mass of those projects and communities are learning from each other how to, how to not reinvent the wheel every time. And uh, so, so uh, I want to find out what smart street lamps might actually mean. It seems, I think what it means is a lot of different things. For example, I was just reading today that in Barcelona, um, they have street lamps all up and down along the beach. And every 15th or 20th street lamp, they've affixed a camera, an imager, imaging camera, to take a look at the beach and evaluate how much open space there is because they've still got the COVID restrictions in place. They still are trying to restrict social distancing. They can say, oh yeah, there's a big wide swath of open sand here. Yes, you're welcome to go down there. It's safe. So that seems like one way to use smart smart signposts, smart uh, you know, uh, lampposts. Uh, I've heard about traffic control. Um, are there? I imagine there's a range of other applications where where having lampposts all over the place is a a really neat idea. <laughs> yeah, so you're right. There's a there's a range, and it can be as simple. Probably simple is not the right word, but the the starting the starting point is really to have some kind of smart control of just the lights themselves. So the ability to uh, control them from some central location via software and manage things like dimming and energy usage and all of that. But then yes, this is of course vertical real estate and vertical real estate is highly valuable. So you could, you know, you can in theory put all kinds of sensors up on up on these streetlights. That can mean cameras, or it can mean, as uh, a lot of industry folks will want to be careful to, to distinguish, it can be optical sensors, which may not actually be uh, streaming any video, but just collecting data from the, the essentially the, the, what the, what I guess, what the sensor sees. So whether or not that's open space, for example, or whether or not that's data around how many pedestrians are going by, for example. Um, so that's possible. You can put all kinds of environmental sensors, for example, up on up on streetlights. You can make them connectivity nodes in a network. So there's all there's a whole lot of <laughs> a whole lot of possibility. And uh it it cause it not shockingly, it causes all kinds of discussions around like, well, what what can these poles actually support if we get a windstorm coming through? Oh, right. <laughs> what does that do? Um, you know, what about data privacy? What about all of these things? So yeah, it's it's uh like I said, it's sort of simple. Like and that's one of the simple use cases, if you will. Every solution comes with its own problems. It does. It really does. So uh also, in one of your previous responses, you were you were, you were referring to uh, the the ability to to leverage um, government funding to to get things done, um, and, and that's always been a difficulty for for smart cities. Um, just about every city will manager will probably tell you that his or her city is is cash strapped. Um, in, we were talking earlier, uh, you and I, about the Colorado Smart Cities Alliance, um, talking about 
wanting to get new innovations, but specifically asking for low or no cost solutions, um, <laughs> which is probably not what, you know, vendors want to hear. Um, what are the, what are the funding, what's the funding environment look like for smart cities these days? Is it getting any better? Is it getting any worse? Uh, you know, what, what, uh, what might be some of the solutions to, uh, to, uh, tight funding? Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's a great, it's a great discussion point. Um, and I, one of the things that us ignite is definitely focused on is, is supporting the communities and, and helping them find solutions, but also creating a path for private sector growth. Because none of this stuff is sustainable if it doesn't, if it's not supported and driven through the market as well. So, federal government and other government funding is critical, but so is the opportunity for private sector companies to make money in these spaces. Right. So, I, I would say that early on in the smart cities space, there was a lot of expectation that uh, technology and equipment and all those things would be donated for the sheer joy of uh, of seeing what could be produced and what was possible. And often they were, right? Yeah, and often they were. They, they definitely often were. And then, of course, you get into discussions about, well, I'll donate this, but only if I can own the data. And there's been a you know, huge backlash there because there's, you know, it's significant. Uh, that's a significant concern for the communities themselves. And so that's that was going to be the trade-off, I think, for a lot of companies. And that trade-off is just not an acceptable one. What I think is, is interesting, uh, well, there's two things that I think are interesting. One, I think, is that we are we are finally at a point where I think there can be more collaboration between the public and private sector in ways that there haven't been before and also in models that haven't necessarily existed before. And I think part of that comes down to, you know, the connectivity piece, for example, you know, we can create or we're starting to get to the point where we can look at smaller footprint networks, for example, right? And once you can look at smaller networks, then you have, uh, then you can look at, you know, it's, it's not the same capital expenditure. It's not the same operating management piece. And maybe there is a role for communities to play, uh, in that, uh, in that network infrastructure. Also with infrastructure, communities own a lot of assets, right? Whether that's the right of way or whether that is streetlights, a number of them have, have bought streetlights back, for example. Um, so there are, I think both sides, neither side, the private sector and the public sector, or the communities and the the private sector vendors, neither works without the other one. And I, I think there's been a lot of learning <laughs> around that point over the last 10 years to the level at which there is uh, a willingness to do some experimentation and working together uh, in different ways. So whether that's, you know, depending on the relationship, maybe one owns some of the infrastructure or maybe uh, they they have the private sector come in and invest in some of the physical assets. But then, you know, the communities, for example, um, have a, you know, have a real stake in how they're operated. Um, I think that's, that's one piece. Um, the other thing, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm definitely running off on a couple tangents here, but so I, th- I think the two things that are interesting are, are one, this, this increased willingness to try to figure out these hybrid models. 
And two, where we are right now coming out of this pandemic um, is there's there's about to be a, a slew of federal funding specifically dedicated to connectivity, but also to the applications that connectivity enables, whether that's education, whether that's uh, healthcare, whether that's other government services. Is that a reference? So is that a reference to the the pending infrastructure bill? Yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple different bills. Some of them are, I, I think, are um, positioned as uh, you know economic recovery um, bills. Some there's the infrastructure. So there's there's a few different places where this is likely to come down. And uh, it's it's potentially a watershed moment in the same way that I think coming out of the 2008 recession, when there was a huge amount of federal funding, that's when the, the BTOP grants, the broadband grants came down. There was a kind of a big leap forward in connectivity at that point. I think we have the opportunity with some of this funding coming down the pike um, to further close some of those those. Uh, digital divide gaps, some of those gaps, um, and then also to kind of kickstart some of the the innovation zones, innovation um, growth that can come as a result of understanding what the problems are that communities are trying to solve. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things communities are trying to solve, right? So how do we, how do we use this funding and this technology to, uh, to promote economic development? Um, how do we how do we use it to be smarter about the the resources um, the way we use our existing resources as a government or um, as a, a people in terms of our you know our environment and our earth and all of that so I I I think it's the combination I think it's the the hybrid public private opportunities that are out there and I think it's the the funding that's about to come down from the federal government that can be this catalyst for hopefully sustaining projects and sustaining impact that will carry forth once that private once that public sector funding has 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 come through and is you know is moved through with with extra with other private sector support yeah now you've mentioned a couple of um uh startups that uh that have have uh, arisen uh to um you know, to help replicate a technology, to help develop and, and then uh, go on to replicate a technology, uh, you know, a specific solution. Um, are, has, is the smart city economic category big enough yet where um, you've got, uh, you know, big major established companies uh, identifying it as a clear near-term opportunity, uh, you know, big enough to say, okay, we're going to establish the, you know, IBM smart cities division or the Huawei smart cities division, <laughs> whatever that might be. Um, what's, what's the status of, of the private sector response to uh, the smart city opportunity so far? I think, it's interesting. I think there were a number of companies that sort of came through and did get burned on the first go round. Some companies that have exited, like Cisco, for example, that kind of backed away from from smart cities. I do think that it's all in the timing, and I 
certainly see, you know, the cable industry, ironically, or maybe not ironically, but the cable industry has has shown a huge interest now and is starting to, to show more so in the smart cities space, um, which makes sense because they're connectivity providers. So And they're ubiquitous uh, you know, in those cities. It's not, yeah. it's not, they don't have to add anything really. That's they don't have exactly to add like right. a major infrastructure. They just need to, you're right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So I, I still think there's a, and again, you know, I, AT and Verizon, AT&T and Verizon have also tried this with, you know, uh, varying degrees of success or not success. So it's, it hasn't been solved yet, but there's clearly, uh, if we can get the timing right, there is, there's clearly a, certainly for the connectivity, I would say for the connectivity providers, and then also obviously for the, the data management and analytics folks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, we have on a couple of occasions during this conversation talked about the um, concerns about data privacy. In my mind, uh, that tends to get associated with data security as well. Uh, they, they tend to be, you know, coincident issues. Um, and cities recently have been the targets of some uh, uh, ransomware attacks. Um do you do you sense from from uh, either your colleagues there at Ignite or or uh, from the cities you talk to or for some of the companies that uh, that that you work with, uh, what's your sense of the awareness that uh, implementing smart city uh, solutions might also open up uh, a new attack surface that that cities might not be able to handle? Yeah, there's there's certainly awareness. I don't I don't think there's any lack of awareness. I think <laughs> security and privacy come up as topics in virtually any deployment conversation. Um, I, I guess there's a couple ways to think about it. One on the the privacy side, which is making sure that that communities have thought through the implications ahead of time around data ownership and data stewardship and management and all of those things so that the the guidelines are in place before we start throwing this data around and then from a from a security or a cybersecurity perspective i mean Yes, you're certainly potentially opening up uh, new attack vectors. My understanding on one one side is that a lot of the you know the the ransomware issues and and um, other places that we've seen intrusions, cyber intrusions, it, the still a big piece of that is the human is the human vulnerability mm-hmm, rather mm-hmm. than the the technology. Not to say that it can't be the technology too, but often it's human error or mm-hmm. it's human, you know, willingness. It's behavioral engineering, right? Get right. them to open up this email and then, you know, yada, yada. So um, I think there needs to be, there certainly seems to need to be as much focus on uh, the practices and the, the processes and the policies and all of that uh, as the technology itself. Um, and then on the, the technology front, I would say this is certainly something that that ever that lots of folks are putting resources into to try to determine how to make the at least the network connections part of it uh, as secure as possible. And one example I'll give is that we we run a bunch of challenge competitions or or support organizations in running a bunch of challenge competitions, and one that's happening right now with the 
Commonwealth Cybersecurity Initiative, CCI, which is out of Virginia. We're working with them to run a challenge to for faculty members and other folks at state universities within Virginia. So it is this is specific to the state or the Commonwealth of Virginia. But the challenge is for them to propose ways that features specific to 5G networks could be used to improve security. So everybody tends to think of, oh, well, this is going to open up more attack vectors. But the truth is a lot of new technologies also offer up new opportunities for better visibility into uh, activity on the networks or better control over, you know, uh, I, I don't want to go too far out of my depth, but better better control over um, how those networks are operated or protected and barriers put up and those kinds of things. So I certainly don't have the answers, but I would certainly say that awareness is high and there has to continue to be effort both on the uh, human human side and also the technology side. Mari, thank you so much. Oh, it has been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. That was Mari Silby, the Senior Director of Partnerships and Outreach at US Ignite. When I was talking with Mari, I asked her about broadband and IoT and artificial intelligence, but I forgot to ask about autonomous vehicles until after we stopped recording. She said that transportation is definitely a key aspect of many smart city programs, and that US Ignite has information available for anyone doing work with smart cities about how everything from autonomous passenger vehicles to airborne drones can fit into smart city plans. For more information, visit the organization's website at us-ignite.org. And that is it for the weekly briefing for the week ending May 7th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with the links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. Have you seen any um, applications uh, or, or uh, of, of smart city technology that uh, that particularly delighted you or, or interested you in any way? Gosh, that's a tough one. Um, right. I, uh, <laughs> the, the security wasn't the tough question. Right, right. <laughs> the funding wasn't the quest, tough question. What do you like? Well, see, me personally, I am still waiting for the, the holodeck stuff, right? I am still waiting for the super <laughs> virtual reality, augmented reality. I remember when, when augmented reality was literally first a thing, and I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. We're overlaying digital information on our you know physical senses and whatever, and it's you know, it's just not moving fast enough for me. I want to, I want to see it all here tomorrow. So I have a ton of, of excitement about the, the possibilities. I mean, you know, gosh, not that I miss going to, to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, because that is a, yes, a whole you do. ordeal unto itself. But you do get those moments of inspiration, too, where, you know, I remember sitting in on you know, some, I think it was a Microsoft where they were showing off the Connect platform and, you know, all the things 
different ways we could interface with the environment just using our bodies. Um, you know, I, I think there's all kinds of things once you have the the connectivity and the processing in place that we'll be able to do that'll be really cool. Um, I have I have fairly decent direction sense, but there was one instance at one CES where I got into the back end of one of the halls <laughs> and I could not figure out how to get out. I mean, like I was really beginning to have like, you know, it wasn't panicking, mm-hmm. but I mean, like I was, you know, I'm good at this. Why can't I find a door? It, you know, <laughs> augmented reality is like you know, take a left. Right. That would I, you know, I, I would have loved that. I think about honestly, <laughs> I think about how much time I spent as a teenager, early driver, being lost on the road. Like all that, I was just lost <laughs> hours, days, months of my life that are you know gone forever.